coma. Just hours after Freddie Gray's funeral, young people took to the streets again. Baltimore is at boiling point. You're listening to the news on RTHK. The impossible takes two days and miracles take three. Where you've got so many different departments and divisions. Shaping investors' expectations. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday's Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. Apple posts a 33% jump in profit fueled by demand for the iPhone and sales growth in China. The S&P 500 falls and gold jumps and the profit of PetroChina falls to its lowest on record as the price of oil declines. Well, there appears to be some profit-taking in U.S. markets. Uh, More discussion on that and on local markets later in the morning with GEO Securities' Francis Lund. Then uh, the Wall Street Journal's Sean McLean will tell us about Xiaomi's ambitions in India. And our final guest this morning is Sujan Melwani of the DMO Group. Uh, He will dwell on the hefty price that companies pay if they fail to retain their top staff. Connie Bolland, our regular guest host for Tuesdays, is back from Europe. Good morning, Connie. Good morning, Renita. So, Connie, the Nepal earthquake casualties are edging towards 4,000 now as, uh, you know, governments from around the world are rushing to aid what they say is one of Asia's poorest economies. Um, Rajiv Biswas of IHS Global has put reconstruction costs at near 20% of Nepal's GDP. What do you make of this? Well, whatever it is, it's a huge amount of money that the government may not be able to show that all by themselves. So um, they're probably in dire need of uh, assistance, financial and other uh, from, from, from outside the country. And of course, um, tourism will also be affected after the tragedy because it will take a bit of time before people come back. So, yes, yes, indeed. a tragedy. And tourism is one of the main... Um, main sources of income for Nepal. Okay, uh, well, uh, let's look at uh, U.S. stocks and, you know, how they're faring. Now, U.S. stocks fell amid a retreat in biotech shares. Uh, European shares rallied on hopes that Greece will strike a deal with its creditors for new bailout money uh, after it reshuffled its negotiating team. And gold rallied on speculation that the Fed won't move any time soon on interest rates. The S&P 500 lost 0.4% to 2,108. The Nasdaq fell 0.6% to 5,060. And the Dow Jones Industrial Average slipped 42 points to 18,037. Gold climbed 2.4% for its biggest advance since January. Oil has risen about 16% in April uh, on earlier speculation that unrest in Yemen could threaten shipments, but then Saudi Arabia signaled on Monday that it will actually keep pumping oil. It extended its decline last night. The West Texas Intermediate Crude fell a third day, losing 0.6% to $56.65 a barrel, and Brent crude oil is currently valued at $64.83. 
In Europe, the Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras has reorganized the government negotiating team handling vital debt talks with the European Union and the IMF. The move follows sharp criticism of Greece's finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis. The BBC's Andrew Walker was asked if Mr Varoufakis has been sidelined. Well, the Greek government does say that he uh, retains their confidence, but um, but I have to say it does look a bit like, at the very least, his role is being significantly downplayed. One other thing that happened at that meeting that um, the Slovak finance minister was um, was speaking after was that the Dutch finance minister, who chaired the meeting, is reported to have subsequently directly spoken to the Greek prime minister. Fairly clear indication, I think, that he's very unhappy about the way the negotiations have been going, and there's there's no question that right from the start of this Syriza-led government in Athens, Mr Varoufakis has had a very difficult relationship with the rest of the finance ministers in the in the Eurogroup. He tweeted after this meeting at the end of last week, quoting the former US President Franklin D. Roosevelt, they are unanimous in their hate for me and I welcome their hatred. Now, you know, a fairly clear sign that the, the, the negotiations are not very diplomatic <laughs> and, um, and it does seem that um, the relationship which got off onto a bad start back in January and February doesn't seem to have improved. Connie, quite a bit of drama that we're seeing, uh, you know, in Europe. Do you think that Mr. Varfakis has just lost respect in the eyes of everyone else? Probably. Um, he has not been able to come up with any proposals that really satisfy the uh, the nations that are giving them the aid and. Uh, so, I don't know. His, his days may be numbered. <laughs> right. Okay, in company news, Apple has reported a 33% rise in its quarterly profit, lifted by robust sales of its iPhones and a jump in revenue from China. Profits for the company rose to 13.6 billion U.S. dollars. Bloomberg's Scarlett Fu has more. $58 billion in revenue for the second quarter, topping the average analyst estimate of $56.03 billion, certainly higher than the same time a year ago. Earnings per share, $2.33. Analysts were looking for $2.16. But as we know, Apple tends to lowball its forecast, and analyst estimates have been steadily moving higher in the lead-up to this earnings report. Gross margin in the second quarter of 40.8%. That is higher than what analysts had been looking for. They were looking for below 40% at 39.5%. In terms of the third quarter outlook, the gross margin will be anywhere between 38.5% to 39.5%. Uh, that pretty much encompasses the estimate of analysts that we surveyed, which was, which was for 39%. And third quarter revenue will be 46 to $48 billion, when the consensus here was for $46.93 billion. We should also mention, Alex, that Apple is expanding its capital return program to $200 billion. So it will be buying back shares and also uh, presumably increasing its dividend. And in line with all of that, the company has boosted its dividend by 11% to 52 cents per share. Apple says that it now has 21 stores in China and is on track for 40 by the middle of next year. Big news for Apple. In other tech news, Google is launching an experimental portal that would let patent holders to uh, sell would let patent holders sell their patents to the technology giant. It said that patent holders can tell Google about the patents that they're willing to sell, and the expected price through this particular portal. Uh, it's called the Patent Purchase Promotion Program and it'll remain open from May the 8th to May the 22nd. Connie, what do you think of uh, Google's new experimental portal? 
sounds like a great idea and uh, provide a platform for people who are who have good ideas and innovative um, 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 things to offer. But I guess, you know, um, these sort of things, you know, they create a lot of traffic when they negotiate. And probably the most important issue is the legal uh, implications and um, in, in dealing with, uh, with negotiators and uh, concluding a contract. So we have to see how the experimental things come up with um, in terms of uh, ratification. Yeah, uh, I'll be curious. I'll be looking online just to sort of see the activity and, yeah, and yeah, what's very happening. interesting idea. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's bring in our regular local markets guest uh, for this morning, Geo Securities CEO Francis. Lee. Hi, good morning. Good morning, Francis. Welcome yep. back. Wow, yeah, happy days are here again. Are they not? Uh, Apple <laughs> is certainly experiencing happy days. It <laughs> seems to have sold more iPhones in China. China than in the U.S. for the first time. Yeah. Now, Francis, do you see this as a continued upward trend for Apple, or is this just an interim buoyant phase? No, until it's the, a uh, continued triumph for Apple. This is the most successful company in the history of mankind. Uh, nobody knows how how further it can go. I think uh, it just changed uh, Apple changed the world. I think uh, <laughs> Tim Cook is a worthy successor to Steve Jobs. Okay, so you don't think it's a matter of time before the other tech companies catch up here? Well, uh, I think uh, for the last 10 years, Apple has been able to stay one step ahead of the competition. Their iPhone sells for double the price of the competition, but still people are buying them, 61 million of them. In the second quarter, that is obscene. No company can be that successful. I I really don't know how long the party can last. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned iPhones because, you know, Apple's iPad sales have actually been declining. And in fact, they've been eaten up by the iPhone, especially sales of the iPhone 6. Yeah, I think uh, because they have a bigger mon and uh, people don't seem to, to need another iPad because the a bigger iPhone can double as an iPad anyway. So it's more or less the same thing. Yeah, right? so it's really cannibalization anyway. Okay. So here in Asia, uh, what are you placing your bets on as to what will take off? Is it the iPhone Well, of 6? course, China, everything on China. I just, I just look at my um, my uh, retirement fund or something like that because I really look at it. And for the last quarter, I suddenly found my China growth fund double in value. <laughs> it gave me a shock. <laughs> wow! Wow! What happened? I think I think China is shocking everybody. Like uh, I think like Connie. <laughs> I think Connie has something to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, Francis. You know, I was in Europe, and then suddenly I woke up to see the the, the news about the the crazy rally, and I thought, what's going on? Am I missing something here? <laughs> so my question is, do you think this is sustainable? It is. Is this just a sort of a valuation correction, or is it sustainable bull market from here? Well, I think it's sustainable to a certain level. I I would place it at the 6,000 level for the Shanghai ACS because I think that is the historic high in 2007. Uh, Of course, right now, we already have some bubble because you you look at uh, China's Southern Railway and China Northern Railway. Uh, uh, It has quadrupled in price since last year. 
and the valuation for the two railway car manufacturers is like uh, one trillion yuan. It's bigger than Siemens, Kawasaki, Bombardier, and the Alstrom combined. So that is rubbish. Of course, that is bubble. But I think uh, the Chinese cons- uh, uh, punters just have too much money. Look at the Hong Kong market now. So, Connie, go ahead. Yeah, but uh, in this case, um, are you more bullish about A share, X share, or Hong Kong market and China market? How do you assess all this? I think, I think uh, I'm maximum bullish about A share market because you, you, you cannot talk reason because uh, no reasonable man will invest in it. Uh, but of course, if, if you want to be reasonable, you, you analyze everything, you will miss the rally in Hong Kong too. Uh, uh, you, you, you look at HSBC and then two oils. And especially when you look at the, uh, the, uh, derivative, they, they, they've been rising like, uh, 200% in the last month. So I think, uh, there is a lot of hot money coming in, play the market, even though it may be for a short while, but, uh, we enjoyed it while the party lasts. Yeah, no wonder you're saying happy days are here again. I mean, the other person who's thinking that happy days are here again is Mark Kingdon, and he's betting on the fact that Chinese shares will rise, and mm. he says that China's actually beginning to emerge from a slowdown. Do you agree? No, I disagree with that. I think uh, all the economic indicators show that China's economy is, is slowing down. And I think uh, what we find is that the the shortcomings of the economic policy of the previous administration under uh, uh, Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao, uh, they pump money into areas that are really non-productive. And, and the, all these non-productive areas of the economy are catching up with China. You have uh, ghost tanks all over China, more than 60 of them. Mm. And you have uh, factories like the steel mills and uh, uh, cement factory producing as excess uh, material, uh, raw material so that they have to find some way to dump their excess production. So I think uh, in terms of manufacturing, in terms of export, it's terrible. Okay. So, Francis, um, if uh, we are to, as you say, play the game while the party lasts, how should we be playing it? (laughs) Well, I I prepare a lecture, of course. Uh, uh, Number one choice is really you play the derivative warrants and the options of any blue chips. They are really moving uh, upwards suddenly, like HSBC, PetroChina. And uh, Sinopec, of course, they already uh, they have already risen 100 times, so it may be a little bit late. And then secondly, you play you you play the shares uh, the A shares uh, whose A shares have risen the daily limit, like uh, the Chi- uh, China uh, South S- South Railway and Northern Railway, mm. and. Uh, and 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 of course the infrastructure plays, and then the uh, insurance companies, and then finally you play you play the well you don't have any penny stocks left now you you play the sense uh, you 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 pay the uh, small small caps. All right, Francis. Uh, mm-hmm. Thank you. That You're was welcome. plenty of investment yeah. advice for the morning. Well, uh, speaking you. of uh, the iPhones and smartphones, we'll be back uh, right after this to talk about Xiaomi and its ambitions in India.
Property owners and licensees of premises are responsible for ensuring that fire service installations are in working order. They must arrange for an annual inspection of their fire service installations by a registered fire service installation contractor. Specific devices in the ventilating system should also be checked annually by a registered specialist contractor. Any non-compliance may lead to prosecution, a fine, and revocation of licenses. For details, please visit the Fire Services Department website. The time is now 8.19 a.m. And let's take a quick look at the numbers. Uh, the Nikkei is up uh, six-tenths of a percent to 20,107. Australia's ASX index is a down 0.05% to 5,952. And Seoul's Kospi is up one-tenth of a percent to 2,159. Well, now that uh, Chinese smartphone maker Xiaomi has enjoyed domestic success, it's turning its sights overseas. Xiaomi has just launched its first phone, the MI4i smartphone, targeting consumers in India, and it's just secured investment from the Indian tycoon Ratan Tata. Let's bring in uh, Wall Street Journal's technology reporter in New Delhi, Sean McLean. Good morning, Sean, and thank you for joining us this early from India. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So, Sean, um, the Indian market, uh, you know, for Xiaomi, what, is, what does this mean? How was the initial reaction in, uh, you know, to the launch in New Delhi last week? Fanboyish. <laughs> uh, um, I think you probably could compare it to the excitement that you might have seen for Apple and other markets with people lining up for hours waiting to get in uh, just for a chance to see it. Already? That's pretty quick. I mean, considering it's brand new. So, you know, for Xiaomi's investors, uh, you know, what does this mean, especially now that they've got Ratan Tata jumping in? Well, I, I think, so I think for one, just to answer your question directly, I think there's plenty of room for investors. The, uh, I mean, Xiaomi is, you know, we, I guess we can technically call it a startup, but there's the startup investment uh, sector in industry, India is quite hot at the moment, almost frothy. Uh, I think people are just piling in. So I don't think investors are concerned. I think for Xiaomi, bringing on Ratan Tata was a smart marketing move. Ratan Tata is a legend uh, among the business community and among young Indians and aspirational Indians. Uh, so for anything, it makes uh, Xiaomi seem more of an Indian company, which may appear appeal to Indians who may not uh, necessarily want to be excited about a Chinese company. Is that right? Okay. Well, the uh, MI4i smartphone uh, sort of appeals, though, to Indian buyers, right, with features like a big battery to compensate for spotty electricity supplies in many parts of the country. Uh, what else, you know, about it is sort of getting the consumer, the Indian consumer, excited? Well, the big battery is the biggest one. Uh, strangely, Indians um, are not as excited about as super large smartphones as they are in elsewhere in Asia. They like a smartphone that can fit in their pocket easily. They like a smartphone that they can hold in their hands easily. They're also um, 
quite uh, concerned about processors, screen quality. Uh, but like the rest of Asia, they want a really good selfie camera, which is what the uh, the Xiaomi Mi4i offers. Um, many of the newest uh, sort of bargain smartphones all come with at least a five megapixel camera facing them. Of so, course. yeah, that, those are, these are all things that are becoming increasingly important. Yeah, selfie uh, selfie needs to take precedence increasingly above everything else. What about the price point? Well, I, in the, it was like being in a rock stadium uh, when Mick Jagger came on the stage or some other legend when they announced that price. It was ear-splitting the screams from the sort of 1,600, 20-year-old men. Um so they are very excited about the price. It's extremely competitive. Everybody was shocked uh, that it's so low. Several people I talked to uh, thought that there isn't any way this company can possibly make money at this price. Xiaomi disagrees, saying that they are selling in a manner that they can make at least a slim margin. But uh, everybody is extremely excited. They've had, I want to say last time I checked with them, 60,000 pre-orders for this phone, and that is, uh, already well beyond the normal supply that Xiaomi releases in its initial batch of shipments. So there will be more demand than there is supply for this phone, I think, uh, and that will continue for some time. Well, it's a massive market, so good luck, Xiaomi. And Sean, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Sean McLean. He is the Wall Street Journal's technology reporter in New Delhi. Come on, baby, light my fire. The time is now 8.23 a.m. And finding and retaining top talent is not an easy thing, not for any kind of company and not the least of which for private banks and asset managers. So what is it that these companies look for as they recruit talent? Let's bring in Sujan Melwani. He is the founder of the DMO Group in New York City. Good morning, Sujan. Morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on Money for Nothing. So, Sujan, your focus is on emerging markets, yes? Yes. So, um, and why then are you based in New York City? Um, We find that, uh, I mean, I have a business partner here on the ground in Hong Kong, primarily taking care of of Asia and the Middle East and so forth. Uh, But we find sitting where headquarters is uh, among the larger institutions and the more mature markets uh, definitely helps when trying to recruit for and I guess, satisfy those firms in their satellite offices and, and abroad from where, where their, I guess, senior management sits. But you're, you're searching for senior management to place in Asia? Is that right? Um, wherever the wealth goes. I mean, with, with the regulatory changes um, and, I guess, you know, governments have been tightening around the world, uh, wealth has been transferring in and out of, of certain countries and more into emerging markets themselves. Uh, so placing people from more mature markets into emerging markets has really been the focus. Yeah, it certainly seems that the wealth is uh, flowing uh, this way or yeah. into emerging markets. Um, tell us about sort of what's happening in the industry, you know, uh, asset management, private banking. So, you know, uh, driving what these kinds of companies are actually looking for you know, as sure. they search for talent. Yeah, well, on the private banking side, I mean, in the front line, um, essentially – Banks are looking to to hold assets um, and make revenues, and they do this through hiring sort of comprehensive 360-degree bankers, um, people who can bring in a client, retain that client, and and generate investment solutions on their own without too much support from the back end of the bank. Um, 
So a 360-degree banker, explain that concept. Sure. Um, I guess in, in the less mature markets, the, the role of a private banker would be to, to retain clients of an ultra-high net worth stature. Mm-hmm. And sitting behind that banker would be a row of uh, investment advisors and solutions specialists uh, to help satisfy that, that client. Um, today, you see banks are being a little bit more sort of consolidated in what they want to hire. Um, they, they, they don't want such high costs. Uh, as a result, they're hiring bankers who can take care of this full process, who really own their clients, um, and who can bring a book of business with them. Well, Sujan, uh, in your experience, this kind of 360-degree banker, um, are they mostly from, from, uh, from the developed world, in, uh, like U.S., Europe, or, or um, how often can you find the local or Asians who can fulfill this role? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean... Um, the mature processes sit in the Western world where the markets are much more mature. I mean, the, the private banking industry in the U.S. and Europe has been around for, for over 60 years. Um, a- Asia, much less. So, so what we see is we need local talent, um, people who speak the language, understand the culture. I mean, Asia is made up of several different countries, um, e- each of which have their own niches. So, uh, I mean, those bankers that have sat in more international institutions and have, have dealt with the processes that come from the Western world but sit on the ground, for example, in Asia what would be the ideal. So, Sujan, I mean, this is an interesting point that Connie brings up because, um, you know, there's been much criticism here about um, the fact that some of the younger bankers mm-hmm. here uh, are not trained adequately or, you know, don't are not trained with the kind of, you know, solution-oriented uh, drive that mm-hmm. is required. And, you know, there's a great article on Bloomberg just this morning which says that, you know, Indians and Chinese are looking east as they sort of pursue their study abroad dreams, east as opposed to west. So um, the training for, for this kind of job, where or how does it need to happen? That, that's a really difficult one. I mean, there's a lot of people in the industry in Asia of which the, the talent pool that satisfies that ultra-high net worth client is, is quite tight. Um, it, it really varies. I mean, you see large transfers of wealth from countries that have just opened up like Malaysia and Indonesia. You know, that, that local talent is necessary. So, so for people like that, um, I mean, exposure to Western process is definitely important, but the, the local niche and so forth is, is, is more. Okay, real quick before we wrap up, you mentioned that there are some bohemian kinds of shops opening up uh, here. Can you tell us quickly about those? Sure. By that, what I meant was, um, you know, for example, booking centers uh, like the Bahamas, uh, the Caribbean, uh, BVI. You know, the places like that are are, are really being of warm to um, to ultra high net worth clients, and they're trying to capture the Asia market as well. Uh, boutique, independent, multifamily office type setups. Um, and, I mean, g- given multi-generational transfer and so forth in Asia, that's something that should warm to the client out here. All right, Sujan. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on Money for Nothing. That is Sujan Melwani, and he is a founder of the DMO Group. Thanks for having me. So a quick look at the numbers before we wrap up the show this morning. The Nikkei is up six-tenth of a percent to 20,108. Australia's ASX index is down 0.16% to 5,945. And Seoul's Kospi is up one-tenth of a percent to 2,159. Gold currently stands at $1,199.70 per ounce. And Brent crude oil is at $64.61. And in currencies... 
The euro is currently worth 1.08 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 119.09 yen and one pound sterling will buy you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 80 cents. Connie, here we are at the end of a Tuesday morning. What should we have our eyes on as we uh, look further into the week? Well, I guess uh, the U.S. is releasing its uh, Q1 GDP number and uh, the Fed is yet um, is having another meeting and a couple of um, companies, big companies, uh, multinationals in the U.S. giving out their earnings uh, for the quarter um, as, along with the Hong Kong companies and Chinese companies. So uh, lots of things happening for the rest of the week. Everybody stay tuned. And Connie, thank you so much for joining us. That's Connie Balland, our regular Tuesday guest host. She is the founder and chief economist of Hong Kong's economic research analysis. And I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora signing off for this morning's Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast before we depart. Today will be mainly cloudy with a few mist patches in the morning and hot with sunny periods during the day. The temperature right now is 23 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 87%. Time for the half-hour news summary with Sam Butler. A huge international rescue operation is underway in Nepal, where hundreds of thousands of people have spent another night in the open following Saturday's earthquake. The Nepali government says the country is short of everything from paramedics to electricity and has deployed almost all its security forces to help the rescue effort. More than 4,000 people are now known to have died in the earthquake. The BBC's Sanjoy Majumdar is in Kathmandu. The Nepalese capital is beginning to resemble a tense city as survivors of the earthquake set up camp on any piece of open ground they can find. Rescue workers are continuing to pull people out of the rubble and the hospitals are overflowing. International aid is coming in by the hour, but there is an urgent need for specialist equipment and supplies. With the 